Brothers and sisters, take out your Bibles and turn with me this Lord's Day morning to Matthew 18, verses 5 through 7. Let us read the word together. But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Amen! Welcome back to the Millstone Collector Podcast. This is a religious deconstruction space, which means, of course, that there will be mockery and tears and gossip and critical thinking because all of those things are necessary and healing parts of the process. I'm your host, Rachel, also known as I Blame Bill on TikTok, and I am so glad you're here today. We will be examining a few different things in today's episode. One, I'll be reading from my own personal testimony that I wrote at the tender age of 17. Um, we will examine the pro-slavery arguments from the Bible that were brought before Congress in the 1840s. And we'll also be having an introduction to my friend and TikTok creator, Arch Radish. Let's get started. Okay, so today I'm going to jump into hot topics, um, but I'm going to admit I'm kind of lying. It's not really a hot topic. I don't know. I would define a hot topic as something that everyone is maybe talking about, at least a lot of people. And today, that is that is not what this is. <laughs> Instead, I am going to share my own personal testimony. Um, and it's, it's going to be a little bit cringy and a little bit wild and a little bit embarrassing. But here we go. Uh, joining me today, because I can't just share it just myself. I feel like I need an actual audience in-house to react to this. So joining me is Professor History. Hello. Hello, hello. Uh, there's nothing historical about this segment. I have just forced him to be in it because he's married to me. And so he has to. Well, there's also the history of our relationship and the history of you. So I love how you can bullshit so well. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Professor History. So a little backstory here. Um, we've been remodeling our house and I uh, was cleaning out a closet and in that closet was like a special box of things from my childhood. And so I was going through it and looking at like grades and, you know, assignments. And I found my testimony. Uh, this is a testimony that I wrote when I was 17 years old, like months before I actually met Professor History for the first time. And... um yeah, it's it, it was a little bit wild to read, a little bit triggering to read. But what's great about it is um, he has not heard this. He's not read this. He has not had it read to him. He's never heard this testimony before. So I'm going to be reading it to him live for you all and him at the same time. In person. In person. <laughs> <laughs> but before we start, uh, why don't you kind of explain to everybody what a testimony is? Because not everybody knows this. Not every denomination of Christianity does this. Not every religion does this. And I'm sure there's all kinds of people out there who have no idea what we're talking about. So think of a testimony as 
essentially the story of your religious conversion. Um, when it comes to a testimony, it is the stepping through of your thought pattern as you move from one field of thought to another field of thought. I have had friends who went from one religion to another, and they were able to make a testimony that made something very, very moving to a lot of people. And as you move towards, um, well, common thought or maybe more, uh, I don't even know how to put it, but uh, as you move towards a field of thought that does not include um, what you indoctrination, yeah, uh, yeah. Te your testimony kind of just is what your is the movement of your thought pattern. Sure. I think you're giving maybe a little bit too much credence to thought throughout that because I feel <laughs> like most testimonies, it was supposed to be about like the workings of God in your heart. And your your heart, yes. Yeah. Um, and in different denominations we're looking for different things, right? Because a huge part of writing a testimony um, in a written form or sharing it in a public way was so that other Christians could know for certain. I mean, not for certain, you can never know for certain, but could could decipher whether you are a real Christian or not. So a lot of it, a lot of your testimony needed to contain elements of what was good doctrine for the denomination you were part of. And according to the denomination, they'd be looking for different things. Um, the denomination I was part of <laughs> was very heavy on making sure you understood you were a broken sinner. You needed to make sure everybody else knew that. It's a funny thing when you actually listen to Calvinists, you'll see them say things like, I'm the chiefest of sinners. I am truly the evilest. I have the most evil heart. And then when you ask them to like, oh, awesome, tell me a sin. What's a sin you've been doing? They They won't be able to answer it because it's all posturing. It's supposed to be you letting everyone else know you think you're really bad. It's okay. I think I'm really bad. So that would have been what a Calvinist was looking for. Um, you grew up a little bit different than me. What kind of stuff would your churches have been looking for? More like a change of heart. And yeah, there would be a lot less of the, I am the evilest of person. And it was more, I went from this to a this. Yeah. I feel like the more dramatic they were, the more people would be excited about it. There used to be whole radio shows about oh, yeah. like <laughs> people's testimonies and very dramatic ones. I was homeless. I had my 15th abortion <sighs> and God saved me. One of my favorites when I was younger <laughs> was Unshackled. It was out of uh, a radio radio station in Chicago. And I, I truly... Yeah, I think it was Moody <laughs> Moody Bible Institute. Yeah. Of course it was Moody Bible Institute. <laughs> and it it was always very moving from a God took you from one place to another. So it was it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I always the the ones that I'm always the most intrigued by, I guess, or I, I just, they kind of tickle me are the ones from like charismatic denominations of Christianity, like the Pentecostals and stuff like that. Cause I feel like they specifically are looking for, 
Um, not necessarily a change of heart. I mean, that's part of it, of course. And not necessarily that you know you're a sinner. That That's part of it. But more that you have evidence that you've been washed and baptized by the Holy Spirit, which is just code for like you have spiritual gifts that are like more magical than other people's. Oh, yeah. So, you know, like speaking in tongues or mm-hmm. prophecy or discernment. And so people are trying to like showcase yeah. the ways that the Spirit has gifted them something. And those always just kind of blow my mind, having yeah. grown up in a denomination that didn't do that stuff. The gift of discernment, which is funny because— It's just a way to manipulate people. Well, it's it's just funny because, you know, it's like you'd think you'd be able to sniff out BS if you had the gift of discernment, but it's like you are more able to project BS. This could just totally be unfair of me and, uh, yeah— just confirmation bias. But I do feel like a lot of the people who claim to have the gift of discernment are also like Trump supporters or also like, <laughs> like they say like Trump didn't win or didn't lose the election. He's still president or the earth is flat or like, I feel like they're in that Venn diagram, it's basically a circle. <laughs> I have questions. I have questions. Can you define discernment for me? <laughs> All right. All that said, I'm going to jump into this. Stop trying to read it over my shoulder. You have to hear it for the first time. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. Okay. This is like triggering for me because I gaslit myself. So here we go. So you ha- you have to read it in 17-year-old Rachel. <laughs> we'll see, man. We'll see. All right. My- wait, wait, wait. wait. I-, I, feel like, I feel like we need to ask the Lord to lead us in this. Shut up. <laughs> All right, here we go. My testimony by Rachel Klinger. I grew up. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) I grew up knowing all the right answers. Because of my Christian upbringing, I had vast amounts of truth at my disposal. Unfortunately, I cared little for any of it. I believed there was a God. I just didn't want to know him. For many years, I hated God for the life he had given me. One of my earliest memories is sitting on my living room couch while my parents told my sister and me that my mother had cancer. For four years, she struggled to stay alive. I never once considered that my mother was unlike other mothers, that my life was different than the lives of the kids around me. The fact that she had cancer didn't even affect me. I don't think I really understood it. I went to school, I played with my friends, and I fought with my sister. My parents worked very hard to see that her disease would not have a negative impact on me or my sister. Overnight, it seemed, she was fading. Soon, she couldn't walk. Then she lost the strength to talk. Finally, she couldn't even open her eyes. She didn't last much longer than that. She died one month before my ninth birthday. That Christmas, there was a present for me under the tree for my mother. That is when it finally hit me. She was never coming back. I wasn't like everyone else. Everyone else had their mothers. I never would again. I began to hate God. The evidence of my anger didn't really become visible until my father began dating again. He met a Dominican lady, fell in love, and was married. Jealousy, hurt, and teenage rebellion all factored into the struggle that began in my home. My father became the referee of many scorching verbal battles. Pain and resentment permeated our home. It just grew worse with each passing hour. Blame was thrown around liberally. 
I refused to see my part in the fights, but I had a clear vision of everyone else's. I believe, however, that God was working through it all. One night, I stepped away from my own pain, and I looked at what I was doing to my family. I saw how I was pushing logs on the fire, and I was disgusted and ashamed. I sat on my bathroom floor, crying out to God. I could no longer be the center of my life. It had gotten me places I didn't want to be. That night, my name was written on his hands. <laughs> what a <laughs> What a glorious God. Everything didn't change at once. I still had a lot of sin that needed pulling out, as I still do. My relationship with my father and with my mother slowly began to mend, nonetheless. Through God's grace, I now have a loving relationship with both my parents. <laughs> Looking back on my life, I see that God was using it all to bring me to himself. Though it was a painful journey at times, I would never trade the lessons I've learned or the or the master, lord, and friend that I have gained. First thoughts? Uh, I, I thought it was, I guess one of the things I thought was so funny was your father fell in love with somebody from the Dominican. <laughs> and uh, uh, It's a unique retelling, eh? Yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Yeah. So a couple things that stood out to me here. The first one I want to say is that uh, so much of this is bullshit. And I do not believe that I was intentionally trying to lie. Um, but I do think that I absolutely had an idea of what the right thing to say was and yeah. what other people believed about me and were saying about me. And so in order to be accepted, I had to then label those things about myself. Yeah, you learned how to BS from the best of them. Yeah, I was never angry at God. <laughs> like I say in here, I was angry. I was never angry at God. At God, that that's not a thing that I was. I didn't have any anger at God. No, I don't think you did either. Not not when I knew you, at least. Yeah, and I have no memory of having any anger to God. But it was such a refrain that the church said that people who are not Christians are angry at God. So I just, I just put that label on myself. Um, I mean, a couple things. I mean, you know these things, but the people listening don't. So a couple, a couple things. Um, I'll start with like. I, I started this whole thing. I started the whole thing by saying that um, I knew a God existed, but I just I didn't want to know him. And that is bullshit. I cannot tell you how many times as a small child, I repented of my sins and became a Christian again, because I was always concerned that I hadn't really meant it before. Oh, yes. This, I mean, that's this was a big thing. I, I, I know of many Christians who they accepted Jesus into their heart more than m more than a dozen times. times just because it was you were always trained to doubt yourself doubt yourself and to well there was always the the dread of what happens if you're not yeah and there and we were told that evidence of salvation is that you follow Christ and you obey the rules. So anytime you had any slip, 
you wondered then, was I not really a Christian? Mm-hmm. So it was. It always created this self-doubt. And then growing up in Calvinism in a Calvinistic church, there was always that, uh, I mean, it was being preached in almost every sermon that Christians lied to themselves and tricked themselves. And so you could think you were a Christian and not be because you lied to yourself. So that was always a fear. And I it was I felt like it was almost every Sunday I'd leave church again and be like, oh my God, what if, what if I'm not? And some of that too, I think, is just what happens in a child's brain. Like you aren't, as you develop as a child, going to be on fire for God, that concerned all the time about such serious matters. And yet the doubt when you didn't, feel that seriousness is what would kind of creep in. There was always the training of if you're not fully on board with this, and if you're not completely on fire for Jesus at all times, then you're not saved. So mm-hmm. that was always the, okay, well, I guess if I'm not, maybe I'm really not. And yeah. Yeah. And and the not was just such a, you can't be a not, because then you're on the other. Yeah, and then there's hell, and it's scary, yeah. and all of that, yeah. So, I mean, that's the first thing that stands out to me is just absolutely not true, and very clear evidence that I was repeating back what I thought I needed to say. Uh, and this also makes sense for me, because I was a writer. I loved English. I loved writing. And one of the ways that you learn to write <laughs> is you copy the work of others. Like you you take on the style of other writers and that's how you start developing your own voice. It's part of the process of learning to to really be a writer. And I can see in the writing of my own testimony the way I echoed the language of other people's testimonies that came before me and that language like I'm I'm it's, it's like borrowing from a genre and it's just wild to me. So yeah, that was just not true. I wasn't angry at a God and I also was not apathetic. I cared and was constantly trying to confess my sins. So absolutely not a thing. Um, Yes, I did have trauma, right? I was labeling my trauma as anger, even though that really wasn't a thing either. I wasn't blaming a God. I'd fully blamed myself for my mom's um, cancer and death. I wasn't blaming a God. So that's just a wild thing for me to say as well. But yes, there was trauma there. (laughs) So I have to halt right here and say that earlier today, we were watching a, a TikTok together. It was from a therapist who was talking about people who intellectualize their trauma and how they're like really good in therapy because like they have all the right words and they can intellectualize it, but they're not feeling it. Um, That's a me. (laughs) Yeah. And I can see the funny thing is as I read this testimony, I can see 17 year old me intellectual intellectualizing my trauma. You can, I can see it. I'm like trying to make sense of it and put it in the right order for like, this is how I became me. Look at all this trauma. Like it's, it's weird. If you go through some of your videos, you can hear that. Yeah. I mean. Oh yeah. There, there if some... you watch my TikToks, you can see I intellectualize trauma. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's one of the ones where you're like, and my father just didn't, I, I, I don't remember exactly, but you were talking about it just like the other day. And I'm just like. She, I feel like, needs to, I don't know. 
feel it? <laughs> feel it a little bit. Yeah. I think our therapist would agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps. It might be connected to my anxiety disorder in some way. I don't know. Wild. <laughs> Yeah, I can see that, though. I can see it as I read this. So this is fun. This is a fun time. Woo, yay. <laughs> um, so another thing here that I thought was really interesting. So backstory, um, my mom died. And a year later, my dad was remarried to a woman that he met um, because he was introduced via a pastor. And she went to another church in another country and didn't speak. English all fully when they met. She learned it. I mean, she spoke it a little bit and then learned it more was as they were kind of. For some context, she was taking advantage of him and he was taking advantage of yeah, her. Yeah, there was so. mutual take advantage being so, taken for sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, she had money and he had American citizenship and they were. they were using each other. <laughs> That's a fun thing. Um, but I did not meet my stepmother until. Uh, my father flew her up for the wedding. That is when my sister and I both met her for the first time. And I, my sister, who is nine years older than me, um, she overheard my stepmom, uh, soon to be stepmother, uh, speaking. She would, she'd come and stay at our home during the day when my dad was working. And, uh, she would be on the phone with friends and just talking shit about us and talking shit about my dad. And my sister told my dad. My dad did not believe her, said she was lying. And um, shortly after their wedding, my father and basically the moment my sister turned 18, my father kicked her out of the home. Um, and by kicked her out, I mean, like, she was at work. He came, took the car that he had given her but hadn't yet put in her name and left her stranded there. She's done. You're out. Um, and they, you know, locked her out. And so this is kind of like the start. It was not a healthy thing. It's not healthy. It was bad. Um, and so as I'm like reading this and kind of glossing over in my testimony, the immense amount of trauma that was going on, I think it's funny that I said I was jealous. Um, I, I Jealousy, especially looking back as an adult, and as a parent myself and seeing the horrible amounts of things that were being done to my sister and I by parental figures, <laughs> just things I would never do to my own children. Just can we, crazy. Can we also walk into your teenage rebellion that you qu quoted? In oh, I know. I was so oh rebellious. God. I was so rebellious. I just, I know. I don't think either of us really went through a teenage <laughs> rebellion, uh, like, that you yeah. could even say was any sort of rebellion whatsoever. Yeah. And even I mean, with, especially with adult eyes looking back, like I was not a great student. I didn't do homework. That was like a big, a big fight in our family. But also I switched schools 11 times and my mom died and my dad got remarried to a stranger who hated me and they kicked my sister out. Like how much trauma do you need to have before someone's like, maybe your schoolwork might suffer. Like, maybe it's not going to hold up. I mean, questions there. Also, as as I'm realizing, I will very likely have ADHD. A lot of my own experiences in school make sense from that lens. Like, probably wasn't just me being rebellious, but me dealing with ADHD. <laughs> I did sneak makeup to school. Oh, my God. I know. My stepmom would take makeup from me as a punishment. Um, and I, and by makeup, I mean, literally, uh, 
cover up. Um, just because I was like, I need something for my zits. Don't send me to school with something where I can't cover my zits. And that was her favorite way of punishing me was to take that away. And so I would sneak in to the bathroom and steal it back. So I did. That was my big, a big rebellion of mine. Super big rebellion. <laughs> you were a horribly rebellious person. I know. So rebellious. Um, but yeah, like once we get into like some of that, I, I, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. Like I wasn't, I wasn't jealous of my stepmom. I just wanted to not be abused. That would have been really great. And I definitely structured this as though there was equal footing. Like we were fighting as though we were equals. No, my stepmother was telling me on a daily basis that I was too ugly for people to love, too stupid for people to love. And, um, oh, and also didn't have a good enough body for people to love. While at the same time, uh, accusing her of having boys in her room. Yeah. And accusing me of like sneaking boys into my room. We lived in the middle of the country and I didn't know any boys. Uh, like uh, weird stuff like that. Like that was the kind of stuff I was getting from my stepmother. And I, on the other hand, was crying and telling her she was being mean. That's what the fights were. Like so not equal. <laughs> yeah. The way I framed this was so very obvious. Like I'm, I'm gaslighting myself and using the words that my stepmother used to others. It's just very weird. Yeah, blame blame was thrown about liberally. Yeah, no, it, blame should have been pointed straight at the evil stepmother and the completely incompetent father. Yeah. And after, before I, uh, what happened before I even wrote this testimony is I had been taken out of my home by the pastors in my church because the abuse had gotten so bad that even fundamentalist Christians were like, that might be not okay. Yeah, we're just going to go ahead and say uh, they violated their, um, what, sworn oath? Yeah, they are technically mandated reporters. Uh, they did. They did not report. They did not. They did not report. Um, but they did take me out of the home, kind of. And uh, yeah, once it got once the abuse got physical in a way that was very obvious in my body, and I went to school with bloody, bruised face, and they couldn't like deny that anymore. So then I got taken. I got removed from the home, and partially removed. And what I mean by that is during the week. I would live with another family in the church. And then on the weekends, I was sent back home into that environment with a stepmother who had been humiliated by having me publicly taken from the home. So she, of course, was angry at me. And that moment that I talk about in my testimony where I say the moment I was really saved, that moment, I said it happened on the bathroom floor. And all I said in here was that I sat on my bathroom floor crying out to God. I could no longer be the center of my life. It had gotten me places I didn't want to be. That night, my name was written on his hands. That's what I say in here. What really happened is it was the first night I came home after being removed from their home. And my stepmother started coming at me to physically hurt me. And I locked myself in my bathroom and I cried on my bathroom floor as she pounded for hours on the bathroom door and screamed through it obscenities at me. 
and screamed through it that I was a horrible, awful person, that I no one would ever love me, that, I mean, called me every name in the book, my dad being in the home and ignoring all of this. And that, <laughs> as I am physically scared and being just absolutely torn to shreds emotionally, that is the moment where I cried out to God and became a Christian, I said. Of course, I, I had confessed my sins and cried out to God many times growing up, but that was like the big moment that changed stuff for me. And there was definitely a change of attitude in me after that. Um, and I, I treated it like basically a, I've got to, I've got to kiss this woman's ass. I've got to do the things I need to do to survive. And that's fundamentally what I was doing, but I was siphoning it through this religious idea of I need to confess every sin. Every single time that I do anything, I need to confess it and apologize and do whatever I need to do to her. So I forget to take out the trash. I'm so sorry. That was sinful of me. I should have not. Like That's the kind of shit I was trying to do, hoping I could win her over and that this stuff would stop. And that's what I wrote in this, like, ooh, now I'm saved and now I'm going to make things better because clearly all this abuse was my fault. <laughs> this is my testimony. The abuse was my fault as the child. And the hilarious thing about this is that it would only be maybe two more months after I wrote this testimony before I moved out again. Because it didn't work. I tried. It didn't work. She was just as nasty, no matter what I did to debase myself. And I couldn't do it anymore. And so I moved out of the home again. So it didn't work. This, this magic saving on the bathroom floor was not what would heal our relationship. Even though I say, and I love this line, even though I say, through God's grace, I now have a loving relationship with both my but you did meet a horribly liberal uh, uh, boy not too long after this. That is true. Months after writing this, I did Just meet a horribly, horribly liberal. Horribly liberal vegetarian. I did. I thought that you were not. I like. I I questioned your own salvation because you were both pro-choice and a vegetarian. Yeah. And Christians can't be vegetarians and definitely can't be pro-choice. That was shocking. <laughs> uh, yes. We had so many arguments about abortion. So many arguments. Yeah. And also, I was right. As a pro-lifer, I was right. Yeah, I'm sure you were. I, I was. Here's the thing. You were using a bad argument for being pro-choice. That's right. the thing. You're right. I'm sure you're right. <laughs> You're saying it like you're not sure that I'm right, and I am right. <laughs> I'm still not sure you're right. <laughs> so that's it. That's the testimony. Um, any final thoughts on this testimony you heard? It just reminds me how indoctrination is so evil. Because no matter what system you're in, you need to be teaching your children different thought. And although, thought. although we are um, atheist as a family, we still teach our kids all of the different 
tenets of at least Christian religion. We don't teach them Muslim religion or anything like that, but we make sure that they understand those different things so that they are able to make their own choice. Yeah. And we've exposed them to some of it, just not as fully as the Christian one because it's what they're surrounded by. Yes. But I'm not even sure that you could say we're a fully atheist family. I'm pretty sure our youngest might still believe in some form of a God. Does he anymore? I don't know. He believes in a heaven. It's been a while. Uh, there, there usually ends up being a, there probably is something. Yeah. he re- he He's building castles in the sky yeah. with his heaven. And mostly we just ask him questions about it. Yeah. Interesting. What part of the human goes to heaven then? And sometimes they get torn down and they get rebuilt. And I don't know. That's the process of critical thinking. Yeah. That's what's great about it. And there's no, there's no threat of hell if our kids get it wrong. So we don't have to be afraid constantly that like, if they don't believe what we believe, bad things are going to happen to them. Yep. Though, dear God, I hope they don't turn into Christian fundamentalists. <laughs> no, they can't. I mean, it could happen. No, they can't. No, <laughs> it'll be okay. They won't. It, it could happen, though. Jesus will make it so they won't. <laughs> and with that, the testimony is over. Dope Disciples, man. It's that time for Dope Disciples. Time to turn the spotlight onto a writer, a musician, an artist, an activist, or a content creator that I think you should be checking out. Today, I want to introduce you to a TikTok creator who is a personal friend of mine and who's been making waves in the world of online content creation. His name is at Arch Radish, and his journey from a devout Christian in the IBLP cult run by Bill Gothard to a current atheist is really honestly nothing short of fascinating. Um, He was featured in the Amazon Prime documentary, Shiny Happy People, if you checked that out earlier this year. Um, And in it, he shared his experiences within the cult and his own path towards kind of breaking free from its constraints. And now he's using his platform on TikTok to create honestly thought-provoking deconstruction videos. A lot of them are funny too. And he sheds a lot of light on some of the complexities of leaving um, religious communities, specifically really conservative ones, and kind of finding your own path forward. Um, And for him, one of the things I love about his content too is, is he really talks a lot about what it's like having family members who are still very much a part of that. So, um, I think it's really fascinating stuff, and I think you should be checking it out. Um, but that's not all he does on there either. He really goes the extra mile. He hosts weekly Sunday morning lives, and a lot of us content creators go live, but I love that Arch Radish does it really consistently. You know when to find him, and you can kind of stroll on in as though it's like Sunday school in the morning. Um, and he just engages with people and chats about what's going on in the world and answers questions about his own background. It's, it's a really good time. You can find me there often. Um, but if you're intrigued by that kind of stories, definitely check him out. And I also have a favor to ask. So 
The American Atheist Organization is starting to gear up for their convention in spring of 2024. Um, I am probably going next year. I'm not sure 100%, but I hope to. I definitely went to the last one. And I spoke at the last one as well, but they're right now taking suggestions for the speakers for April. And I really think that Arch Radish would be an amazing speaker. I think I would personally love to hear more about his backstory and his own journey. And I think it would be really fascinating for everyone who attends. And he has submitted a proposal, but it does not help. I'm sorry, it does not help. It does help. It does not hurt to have um, other people suggest that he be a part of this. So I'm asking if you're so inclined, if you already follow him or if you want to check him out and you find that you really like his stuff, maybe head on over to the American Atheist website and nominate Arch Radish as a speaker for the convention in 2024. I'm definitely going to be doing that. And the more of us that do, the better chance he has. And I think he would be really, really fantastic. And I really, I really want to see more content creators um, be featured on that stage because I think we have a lot to offer. So many of us are speaking from personal personal experience. And there's a lot of power in our stories. And I would love to hear Arch Radish's story on that stage. So if you're interested, please, please, please go over and nominate him. But even if you don't feel so inclined to nominate, definitely check him out, follow him. He is such an engaging creator and a personal friend. Welcome to Fruits of the Spirit, the segment where I and my co-host, the suspiciously self-proclaimed Professor History, dig deep into the annals of church history to uncover forgotten tales that disgust and horrify. Today, we are going to go back in time uh, not quite as far as we did in our last segment, not quite as far as Luther. Instead, we're going to roll those years up a little bit to the eight. 1940s. Professor History, welcome. Hello, hello. Uh, can you say that a little bit more clearly into the mic, Professor History? <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you tell us, before we jump into this new, wonderful Christian man we're about to learn about, can you tell us a little bit about what was going on within the United States and kind of at the world's level in the 1840s? What was going on that we should maybe know about before we jump into this? So there's a few things that were going on during this time. Um, the abolitionist movement in the United States was becoming uh, a lot more uh, vocal. And um, so that was one piece of it. Then you have, as we move into the 1840s, you have the Oregon Trail opening up um, and the precursor to that, obviously, was the Mexican-American War that opened up the uh, states or the future states of Texas and Arizona and Colorado and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you, as you get into the late 1840s, you start getting into the gold rush in California and that brought tons and tons of uh, immigrants into the United States that traveled the Oregon Trail uh, through the West. 
and grew the population. Uh, some of the more horrifying pieces of this, as you get in, or in the early 1830s, you get into some of the truly just, it's really hard to even talk about some of the things that happened with the Native Americans on the eastern coast uh, of the United States and how they were either obliterated or force marched um, out west into territories that they had never been into. And you had um, U.S. presidents who just said, just put the kibosh on any uh, idea of honoring any treaty that had ever existed between Native Americans and the um, United States, and just truly awful things that happened. So there's that, and then there's... Uh, a lot of revolution at uh, this time, too. Well, in Europe, there was a lot of revolution. In There was, um, what was it, the springtime of the peoples, or uh, something similar to that, where essentially everybody was seeing the freedoms that existed in the United States, and they were saying, uh, we should have some of that here. We're kind of tired of all of the weird rulers that we have. So, <laughs> rulers. I, I love that very scientific phrasing. Weird rulers. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the uh, that would be the correct term. The weird <laughs> is, rulers. Okay, I'm just I wanted to make sure it was peer review. Yes. Okay, that's gotcha, the peer gotcha, reviewed gotcha. term. <laughs> um, I feel like this was about the time that like Marxism was taking off too. Am I wrong there? Uh, Marxism started coming. Uh, I don't know if it was eighteen forty three, eighteen forty eight, somewhere in there was when Karl Marx wrote his first manifesto, and that started spring. Uh, that started like the springboard of a lot of uh, interesting revolutions that started happening all throughout Europe. Okay. So lots going on. And of course, within the United States, as you already mentioned, there was the abolitionist movement that had a pretty strong foothold by this time, obviously. Um, and that matters today because we are going to talk about a Christian pastor that most people probably haven't heard of. Um, his name was Reverend Thornton Stringfellow, and he was a pastor in Virginia. And fairly mediocre. Like, nobody is, like, remembering him. If you look up his Wikipedia, even, I mean, there's, like, a tiny blurb on him and just a tiny blurb. What he was known for is one single thing, and that was his defense of slavery. And he was known for that not because he was unique in this. Uh, many, many, many Christian pastors and most Christian denominations at the time were – up until the 1840s, I would say, solidly pro-slavery or at least um, apathetic towards slavery. Um, but he was known not because he was special in this, but because he wrote a book about why he thought the Bible supported slavery. And his arguments in that book really summed up the arguments that were being used at the time. And because of that, historians going forward were able to really point to that book and showcase all of those arguments, really sum, sum them up really clearly. And so we're going to talk a little bit about him and those arguments today. So he wrote this book uh, in a brief examination of the scripture testimony of the institution of slavery, <laughs> published in 1841. Also, uh, I love that he used the word brief in the title, but the title itself is not brief. Like, it's a long-ass title and not brief at all. 
Um, but in this book, uh, he kind of sums up his arguments in defense of slavery um, in two major ways. The first one, most people are pretty familiar with. When we have conversations with Christians these days and talk about how the Bible is pro-slavery, what do you, you normally go to? So it's not my first one, but I know that most people's first argument ends up being within Exodus, where um, Moses is being given or is giving the rules to the people of Israel, and they are being told how to have slaves. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think that's the one I see the most often. Um, when we're engaging with Christians on the topic of slavery, and we talk about how slavery is supported in the Bible, we usually go right to that, right? I mean, there's an entire verse that talks about how um, you're allowed to beat your slave as long as it doesn't cause immediate death. <laughs> death down the road, a couple days later is fine, not immediate death, right? And there's all kinds of other rules around that. That's usually the argument that most people are most familiar with. And that is definitely... Um, one of the points that Reverend Thornton Stringfellow spoke of in his book, he goes back to that and he is incredibly intellectually honest. He says, listen, the Bible is really clear when it doesn't want you to do something. God is really clear when he doesn't want you to do something. If he doesn't want you to touch the Ark of the Covenant and you touch the Ark of the Covenant, he takes your life right then. If you are doing something he doesn't want you to do, he makes it clear that that was wrong. That is the God of the Bible. And yet, despite that, the God of the Bible exists or allows slavery to exist in his presence without ever calling it out. And also, on top of that, he gives you specific rules about how to do it, which means that the God of the Bible cannot be opposed to it. That doesn't make sense according to the way the God of the Bible operates everywhere else in the Old Testament. Um, and that's basically his first argument. And then he makes a second argument. And the second argument was very common during the time, but I think a lot of people have maybe gotten farther away from or not as, not as familiar with. And I'm betting, Levi, <laughs> or Professor History, um, I am betting that this is the one that you probably thought of first. So let me see. Something to do with perhaps Paul and a slave of uh, who had run away from their master? Yes, absolutely. Well done. Ah, well yes. done. Yes. In the New Testament, there is a book called Philemon, and it's actually a really short book. It's only like a, a couple chapters, really, really short book. It might even be the shortest book in the New Testament. Don't quote me on that, though. Um, and in the book, a slave runs away from his master and comes to Paul. And Paul sends him back to his master. Now, he sends him back with a letter saying to the master, like, hey, don't treat him unkindly. Be, you know, be kind to this man. Um, accept him back as a brother in Christ. Um, but nowhere does Paul say that slavery is wrong. Nowhere does Paul say that he should free this slave. And nowhere does Paul jump in and say, no, I'm not going to send you back because that is a human rights violation that's happening. And you should not be sent back to someone who thinks he can own you. Nowhere is that, does that exist, right? Paul is not 
a stop on the Underground Railroad here. That's not what's happening. Can, can we just go ahead and put a tangent in here? Because at, at the same time that abolitionist movements are becoming very popular in the United States, this is the exact push that is happening from this pastor, which I feel like is so relevant today when we are pushing so many uh, human rights things and pastors are specifically pushing back, trying to use the Bible in whatever way they want to, to be able to say, no, God doesn't think that. He thinks this. Yeah. And honestly... I don't think they're wrong most of the time, much like I don't think... Coming from your very Calvinist upbringing. (laughs) Sure, but he's he's correct. He's correct in that the Bible, both in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament as well with the book of Philemon, makes it really clear that slavery is not considered bad or immoral according to God's law. He's right. And if God's law is going to be what dictates your morality, then... You can't point to anywhere in the Bible where it says slavery is wrong. And this was a problem that the abolitionists had. Abolitionists also used the Bible to promote freedom and to promote the ending of slavery. But they could never point to a verse where slavery was condemned. All they could point to were verses about loving your brothers. That's all they could get to. Love your neighbor. Be kind to your neighbor. And those are much more vague. And especially when you have to hold that at the same time that you're holding a, a, a book or an entire you know series of books put together that uh, in no way condemns slavery, you are in a really difficult place. And I think at the end of the day, the pro-slavery crowd was right. They were right that the Bible promoted this. And the thing is, that argument, the Philemon argument, was used in Congress. Really? Yes. This is what I find so interesting. Most of the time, we do not examine. Christians have done a really good job of spinning this. They don't want to be associated with slavery anymore. They don't want people to remember that they were pro-slavery in the past. They don't They don't really want that to be a Kinda thing. Kind of like the more liberal, liberal Christians don't want us to think, oh, we used to be anti-everything. Yes, exactly. And they're doing what happens all the time, right, is the Christian church now looks back and says, well, no, no, Christians fought against slavery, guys. Christians fought against slavery. Oh, yeah, the liberal ones, the liberal denominations that you all called heretics and tried to burn. Yeah, they did, but you called them heretics. Much like today, the liberal churches that are pro-gay, you call heretics and want to burn. It's the exact same situation all over again. But specifically, the book of Philemon was used um, when Congress was dealing with the Fugitive Slave Act. Because the Fugitive Slave Act said, you know, this idea was that um, if a slave runs away, if a slave gets away, then you have to return them. If they escape, you have to return them. And this is what the pro-slavery side wanted to argue. And uh, the abolition side said, no, of course, if they, if they escape, they should be granted their freedom and no one should send them back. And the argument was, well, in the book of Philemon, it makes it really clear that you should send the enslaved person back. You should send them back. Hmm. Because that's what Paul did. How did that not turn all of the Christians of the North to atheism? Because <laughs> you can always spin something. You can always spin it. No, my God wouldn't do that even though he 
clearly didn't condemn it anywhere. Neither did Jesus, by the way. Um, but, you know, you, you can't get all the way there. You can't get all the way there. It should have. Instead, what it did is it split the Baptist church. Um, and that's how we have the Southern Baptist Church. We have the Southern Baptist Church was created um, during this time period because the Baptist Church did not come out as a whole on the side of abolition. What they said was, uh, "We don't want this to be a sticking point. We don't want our members to fight over this, and we don't want this to be the reason that Christianity loses cultural ground." Sound familiar, right? And uh, the Southern Baptists, the people who would soon become the Southern Baptists said, no, this is an absolute sticking point for salvation. You must believe that the Bible is pro-slavery, even if you personally don't want to own slaves, even if you personally would be not comfortable with it, you must accept that the Bible is pro-slavery or you are giving up the... Um, what was the word they used? The uh, authority of scripture. And it's so funny to me because oh, this is the same, that same argument thing? that they use for homosexuality. Yes. You're giving up the authority of scripture. Didn't they use the same argument for a divorce? For divorce, for creationism. For, you cannot give up the authority of scripture. I mean, I mean shoot, they even use the same argument for women voting. Yes. It's the same argument. They use it consistently, and we have the same debate every time. Which, side note, this is personally why (laughs) I do not think you can reform Christianity. There's a lot – I have a lot of friends who are liberal Christians, and we agree on like 99% of things ethically and morally. But at the end of the day, I don't think Christianity itself can be reformed. Because I think this is the consistent problem that comes whenever you get your morality from a book. Is as our morality changes, as we learn more, as we as we accept more and more beings into our circle, into our tent, and want to grant rights to everyone, as we grow in our morality, Christianity moves you backwards or at least puts a barrier towards that growth because you have to make it fit in the Bible somehow. Yeah. It's like an anchor holding you in the past, as opposed to saying, let's move forward. Let's be a sail. Yeah. Mm. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's how I view it. I think that comes a lot from your Calvinist upbringing. You always think everything is from my Calvinist it upbringing. It is, though. <laughs> the thing you need to realize is that Calvinists are the most logically consistent. Yes, but there is no love in Calvinism. There isn't. I fully agree. They're, I, they're evil, but they're logically consistent. Yes, that is true. <laughs> Thank you for joining me, Professor History. You're welcome. I love you. Love you, too. All right, friends, that's all for today. Thank you so much for joining. If you have any suggestions for topics to cover, drop us a note. You can contact us on our website at www.millstonecollector.com. That's www.millstonecollector.com. See you next week.